0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 12. Judges chapter 12, we're finally wrapping up this narrative of Jephthah, looking at the last section, verses 12, 1 through 7, and then we'll jump ahead to chapter 13, as we've already covered the um, minor prophets mentioned at the second half of chapter 12. And so we'll read the first seven verses of chapter 12, and then all of chapter 13. We come from one controversial judge to another, Jephthah to Samson. And the Samson narrative uh, provides another good opportunity to remind us that the book of Judges is ultimately about how God operates through Israel to bring about redemptive history. You don't want to lose sight of that as you're focusing on these individual characters because it's not really ultimately about them. It's not about Samson. It's about Jesus. It's about how they point forward to God's redemptive plan through Him. And so colorful characters really should not become central. They are examples for us in our faith and in their obedience, uh, but their primary function is to point us to the true hero of the Scriptures, to Jesus Christ. So the... The primary purpose of Samson's narrative, as really could have been said of all the judges, is that salvation belongs to our Lord, that God is in control, that God brings rescue. So before we read this first section, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for this time to reflect upon the book of judges and these characters that many of whom we we are fond of reading we we enjoy learning about their life they are they lived exciting lives they have an exciting testimony and yet lord that is their their primary function is not to be lifted up but to be pointers Christ. So help us to see that as we consider the end of Jephthah's reign and the beginning of Samson's. Help us to see how in both cases we see glimpses of our true judge, of the greater Jephthah, the greater Samson, Jesus Christ. And may he receive the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So read with me, Judges chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said, no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Amen. That's far God's word. Well, we come to this first section here, and I just want to consider the death of a Savior, the death of a Savior. And I'm using that term in maybe a lowercase sense, using it in terms of these judges, Jephthah and Samson, as pointers to the great Savior. And so once again, we have this tribe, these hot-headed Ephraimites on the scene. They're irritated and they're stirring up conflict. In fact, if you go back to Gideon, you'll remember he responded to them and diffused their anger with a a peaceful comment, a peaceful remark, right? He encouraged them. He, He told them that God was using them in ways greater than even he was being used and it softened them. Well, here, Jephthah and the Gileadites Respond by fighting and and killing 42,000 of them. So, what are we to make of this response after I've fought very hard to show you that Jephthah has a strong character and that he made a a good vow and commitment to offer his daughter into temple service rather than offering her as a, a sacrifice, a literal sacrifice? What are we to make of the conclusion of his narrative? If we've said that his vow was irrational or unlawful, then we're quick to use this as another opportunity to pile on more guilt and shame upon him as a judge to declare him prone to conflict and violence, that he was just a bloodthirsty individual. And if this were some kind of judgment from God, For his unlawful vow, as some have said, it does seem odd to me that he is the one victorious in this battle, right? So if God was judging him for making an unlawful vow, why would he give him victory? On the other hand, if you have been gracious to him and you've interpreted his vow as being not so tragic, then we're left wondering how to understand the conclusion to his account because the author's not explicitly or implicitly negative about what happens here. He just tells the facts about Jephthah's actions. And so that doesn't mean he's, he's positive, but he's not negative. It just means that we should read more into the account than is actually, or, or we shouldn't read more into the account than is actually provided. We need to be careful about saying more than we should. But I do think that the parallels here with Gideon are consistent, and you have an unfortunate end to an otherwise uh, God-honoring reign. Um, Just like Gideon, Jephthah's narrative lacks reference to his dependence upon the Spirit at this point, Um, and it ends in civil warfare. So it seems to me that the Spirit gave them victory, as he declared, over the Ammonites, as he declared he would, but their victory over Ephraim was counterproductive. It's against his own people. But I want to be quick to say Ephraim wasn't innocent here. They were short-tempered. They were easily offended. They began with accusations of a threat to burn down his house over him. I'm going to destroy you, basically. And yet Jetha hadn't done anything to offend them, as he responds in verse 2. I I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you didn't save me from their hand. And they're, they're accusing him of not calling them out. He says, you didn't respond to the call. So it seems like it was the opposite. They also provoked them by calling them fugitives, right? suggesting they don't belong in the covenant family. And so at the very least, there is a bit of ambiguity about how Jephthah was supposed to react to this, about what he's supposed to do. But I I can't get around the fact that Ephraim was still a part of God's covenant people. they, They had not ever been excluded. God had not given instruction to anyone to eliminate them. And so I find it hard to see it any other way than than negative, right? That an otherwise faithful and exemplary judge, once again, like Gideon, has a sad ending. And obviously, the, the differences between Jephthah and Jesus are significant here. This is a contrast. I've already pointed out in previous weeks that Jephthah's character and his commitment were exemplary, and I think they foreshadow the perfect, the perfect judge, Jesus Christ, but, but this section of conflict and death provides a contrast with the superior nature of, of Christ's sacrifice. And so I put this in your notes, whereas Jephthah slaughtered his fellow Israelites in order to establish temporary peace, Jesus Christ was slaughtered for his people in order to establish everlasting peace. All right, so that's, that's a, an important contrast to keep in mind here, right? that Jesus Christ did what no one else could do, and he established what no one else could establish, what we're all seeking after, peace, restoration, reconciliation, primarily with God but also with one another. We see it not only in the church, but in the world, right? There's radical discomfort where there is strong conflict, right? We can, we can point our fingers at the Senate this past week, talk about how unproductive their gathering was, unhelpful it was for the nation how dysfunctional their approach is to everything, it would seem. And yet every community faces conflict. And shouldn't the church be known as a place that resolves those conflicts with grace and peace? Shouldn't we be exemplary to a watching world? It's the attacks from within the covenant community that are often the most damaging to our witness. Both parties could... Here, both parties in this passage could claim innocence. They could claim that they were provoked. And yet, in the end, the entire community suffered. The Ephraimites, like so many in the church, were more interested in their own agenda than the will of the Lord. They fought to protect, protect their own interests rather than the good of the community. Proverbs 18, 19 says, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And a quarreling is like the bars of a castle. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. So it's easier for a military to defeat a city than to reconcile an offended brother. Isn't that a perfect picture of what takes place here? Rather than seeking the harder thing, of reconciliation, he simply went to war with them. Jetha took the easy way out here. And so after showing so much patience in, in his diplomatic response to the king of Ammon, we have only a few verses here in response to Ephraim. And what takes half of a chapter previously here only takes a few verses in his response to his own kinsmen, to his own people. And this is finally the first time that I've got to this question that's in your handout, but it's been there now for three weeks. And so it must be an important one for us to consider. What can you do this week to promote unity and peace within the covenant community? That's something we should all be actively seeking, right? In this case, the result was civil war. And so Jephthah's reign was short, he reigns for six years, and then it says he died and was buried in Gilead. And then you have the three minor judges that we've already dealt with previously, so we'll jump ahead now to chapter 13 and follow along as I read this chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zora of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had, no chil- and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. Neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her Let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why did you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock of the Lord, on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife than Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a, and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshdael. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, so now we come to the birth of a Savior, and you have the angel's promise and a reiteration to Manoah in verses 1 through 14. But did you notice what was missing here? In between them doing evil in the sight of the Lord and the certain man of Zorah that's mentioned, Manoah, in verse 2, there's there's no mention of the people of Israel crying out to the Lord. We've seen that phrase in chapter 3, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 3, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And chapter 10, verse 10, we've seen it five times previously that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord in distress. We don't see that here. And 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 what does God do in response? He doesn't wait. He fulfills his covenant promises to them. It's a glorious picture of his grace to us. Praise God that he doesn't only work when we ask him to. Del Ralph Davis says, for if Yahweh's help were given only when we prayed for it, only when we asked for it, only when we had a sense enough to seek it, what paupers and orphans we would be. Is that not true? Now, this passage has some negative hints, and and I want to point out a few of them, because this is a, a with Samson, it's going to be another mixed narrative where we see some things really, that we're really encouraged by and others that, that we scratch our heads about. And we get it right here from this birth narrative. You have Manoah as a Danite. And if, you've, uh, can, if you know anything about the Danites, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, verses 16 and 17, and you read, Dan shall judge... His people, as one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backwards. And so he's from a tribe that has already been prophesied from the very beginning to be a tribe that would cause conflict and stir up strife within Israel. They shall be a judge as one of the tribes, a judge against his people one of the tribes of Israel. And then in in Judges itself, uh, chapter 1, verses 34 to 36, you have the example of Dan really being at the end of the list of people who are coming into the land, right? We saw their unsuccessful conquest, how they were leaving um, their neighbors in the land, and some of them being subject to forced labor. Well, Dan was the one that That was pushed outside of their their territory. It says, The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Haraz in Aijalon and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. So you have just a very brief mention of Dan as basically being impotent. They had no power against their neighbors. In the beginning of Judges, and then what we'll see in chapter 17 and 18 is that Dan is part of the, the depravity of the entire nation here. They're the ones leading the charge, if you will. They take, um, they take a Levite for themselves and, and idols, they begin to worship in their own way. Um, so, so the tribe of Dan is problematic, that's the, that would be a negative hint of, of Samson. You also see something curious here in verse 5. For behold, uh, he, he shall be a Nazarite uh, to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He'll begin to save them. It's, it's a partial rescue under the hand of Samson. It's partial deliverance from the oppression of the Philistines. It's, there's never this, this period of, of peace. So, and at the same time, there's there's some very positive hints. And that comes from the idea that his mother was barren. You say, oh, this doesn't sound positive. But barrenness in Scripture is almost always followed by a miraculous birth. You have examples of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, and all of those miraculous births point forward and foreshadow the virgin birth. Of Jesus. So just as in creation, so in redemption, you have the Lord bringing salvation out of nothing. He builds a Savior here from scratch. And he was to be a Nazarite from birth. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, you have a little more understanding of what a Nazarite was, what a Nazarite vow represented. And so I'll read it to you, Numbers 6, 1 through 8, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And so the example of Samson as a Nazarite is from. Birth to death, a significant vow that his mother makes, or that that his mother receives from the angel of the Lord for him. He was to abstain from any product of the vine, even if it's not fermented. He's not to be partaking of any of that. The blessings of the harvest, the joy that wine represents in Scripture, he is to refrain from that. His hair is to be uncut during the vow. He's not to have contact with the dead body. Death representing the curse. All right, so Nazarites were consecrated in purity. And Manoah clearly took this responsibility seriously. And so he seeks the favor of the Lord to, to return, to send this man back so that he can have further instruction. And he wanted to hear the promise for himself and ensure that he did his part in raising up this child, right? Is it not a picture of all of our responsibilities as parents right? to raise up our children in response to God's covenant promises to us that we would share those with our children? We would seek the Lord's favor and His instruction in raising them up. And so I ask you that question: Do you, how are you raising your children under the nurture and admonition of the Lord? What does that look like in your home? And is there regular family worship? Are you catechizing your children? Are you giving them an understanding, a systematic understanding of Scripture? Are you helping them to see God's grace in their lives, the promises that are upon them, and the responsibility that they have to respond to those promises? And so although God hears his prayer and the angel of the Lord returns, there isn't any new information that's given to him. And yet, what do, they, what do we see? We see this remarkable picture of the couple worshiping God. It's similar to Abraham showing hospitality to the angel of the Lord. It's similar to Gideon worshiping the angel of the Lord in Judges chapter 6, verse 19. They seek, he seeks to understand the, the name of the angel. At this point, not even sure who he is. And the angel's response is that his name is wonderful. Right? My, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Not, not giving him his name there, but speaking of, of its wonder. Psalm 139, verse 6 says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's the same word there. It's too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The angel's name is beyond comprehension. And what it's saying there is not the name itself, just the the literal name, but, but the character and the nature of the person is beyond comprehension, which the name represents. And so the first thing you should know about God is that you cannot know him Exhaustively. For God to be God, He must be transcendent. He must be superior. He must be above and beyond your ability to, to package Him up nicely. And so, on that note, there's, they get to witness this wonderful thing where the angel of the Lord ascends in the flame of the sacrifice in verse 20 a wondrous display of his divine nature. And fire and smoke are often associated with these theophanies, these theophanic elements. You see the same thing in Abraham's narrative and in Moses. There's fire and smoke where where God's presence resides. And so Manoah and his wife's response are typical of all those who encounter a holy God as We considered in Sunday school this morning, as Mark mentioned, this idea that they fall on their faces in worship. They recognize what they just witnessed, and their first response is trembling. There's this reverent fear. And worship and fear are so often together in Scripture. They go hand in hand. And there's something about the holiness of God that should strike fear into the heart of man. And yet, his love draws us in with anticipation. And so where is this, this balance? How do we understand it? We still kind of struggle with it. And I've always appreciated the way C.S. Lewis captures it in The line, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. I know I've used this before, but when Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are teaching Susan about Aslan, they say, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so I've said this before, but I'll I'll say it again. If If you want a safe space, you shouldn't come to church. We cannot promise you that you'll never be offended by something we sing, by something we pray or preach, even... As we explain the gospel. But I will say it is my hope that you will find God to be a good God who offers you something much better than temporary safety, who offers you everlasting peace. And so Manoah's wife provides this necessary balance to Manoah's fear. In Judges thirteen twenty three, she says, uh, the wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Again, in your handout you have, God didn't reveal his power to Manoah and his wife in order to leave them devastated and trembling in their fear. Right? In order, it was in order to leave them comforted and assured by his ability to save, that they could trust that he would fulfill his covenant promises through their son. And so do you worship God with that reverence and joy? How do you keep that balance in these two reactions to God's holiness and power? Right? It's, it once again brings us back the cross where we find that balance perfected, where we see the power of the unmitigated wrath of God poured out upon his only son. And we see the son enduring that wrath for the sake of all who place their faith in him. And the result is peace and assurance that no matter what we're going through, God the father did not withhold from us his son and he's already given us the most gracious gift we could imagine. And so the passage closes here with the Savior's birth, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshdale. And so we see the beginning of the Spirit's work in Samson's life. beginning to stir him. Right there in verse 25, that's the only reference to his childhood. If We don't even know his age here. But the Spirit's work will be referenced several more times. In fact, the Spirit's work is more prominent in Samson's narrative than in any other judge's life. So the parallels with several other birth narratives in Scripture are obvious. You have Samuel, John the Baptist, of course, Jesus Whatever we conclude about the different episodes of, of the life of Samson, we would do well to keep in mind this big picture, what he's pointing us to. And so the new Bible commentary says, the climax of the story casts a long shadow before it. Like a far greater one to come, this deliverer will fulfill his mission at the cost of his own life. And so there's several parallels to Jesus as we work our way through the narrative of Samson. But the Lord set apart Samson as a Nazarite from birth. Yet he was born in sin. The one greater than Samson was not only set apart by the Lord from birth, but he was also born without sin. He was born in holiness. So Samson would provide partial deliverance for a finite period of time and yet Jesus saves to the uttermost. And as Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 27 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Is that the best news we could ever hear? That we have a Savior who brings salvation out of nothing, and he offers it freely to us. We simply trust in him. So let us praise the Lord to whom our salvation belongs. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder.